know what? No, I, no I'm not going to do this. Blind dates are a nightmare. Always ends up being with some guy who keeps yapping on about his two cats. And I spend the whole night trying to figure out a way to get out of there by faking my own death. Excuse <laughs> me, Mother Superior. It just so happens that I've met many fine young lovelies on blind dates. I'm talking about blind dates, not blindfolded dates. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Ow! Be a funny daddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we have a heck of a trope today. What are we talking about, Amy? It's time for your blind date. Blind dates. We're talking blind date episodes. So setting aside internet dating, which I think is kind of its own thing. Right. Um, have you had a blind date? Have you had a true blind date in your life where you showed up sight unseen? I don't think so. I've been set up, but I feel like it was somebody at least that I had seen in passing before, like a friend of mine was dating a guy at her youth group and I didn't go to that church and I'd met his friend sort of in passing before and we got sure. set up on a date. So he wasn't truly a blind date. I mean, I didn't know him, but I'd like right. seen him. But yeah, that is that is a crucial difference. Um, I feel like I'm going to say I have been on a Ooh, blind date. tell me. And uh, much like we'll see in these shows, it's dicey business. It's uh, <laughs> you, you want to be careful. Um, Wait, I want to hear who set you up. How did this come about? I had well, in the interest of not hurting anyone's feelings, I'll, I'll <laughs> keep the details vague. Just in case this girl that you had a horrible date with might be yeah. listening to our random podcast. Wasn't horrible. She might be one of our sixty-something listeners. <laughs> um, this is into our 30s, maybe even 40s, where oh, it's like... Oh, wow. This was like older. Okay. Yeah, I, I was a teenager. But, but so it's at that point where being single is sort of the exception and most right. people are kind of settled down. So it's kind of a thing when someone discovers like, oh, I know these two people that are both roughly the same age and I think they're both kind of smart and I, oh, that wouldn't they be good together? So I had one of those situations where, you know, someone said, oh, I have this person. I think you should get a hold of her. And so long story short, I, I went on this date and it was fine. And I think we even <laughs> went on a second date. But, you know, it ultimately was not a love connection. She wasn't really my type. And, you know, I kind of ran into a lot of the same issues that I think people, the characters in these shows are going to be worried about. You don't want to be a superficial asshole, but at the end of the day, you don't want to go out with somebody that you're not attracted to. And so you're sort of desperate for information about how can I know what I'm, what I'm getting myself into. And yeah, I guess I'll say that watching these episodes had a lot of... Uh, 
Watching these episodes touched on a lot of experiences I've had, I feel like, on both sides of these sort of dating situations. But yeah, my one experience explicitly going on a blind date, you know, the situation sort of ended with a whimper. It did not lead to a torrid love affair or a happy (laughs) marriage or anything like that. It led to me sort of semi-ghosting the person. But, you know, we had only gone out once or twice, so I, I don't think I'll burn in hell for it. But it it made me feel kind of oogie, and I I didn't love it. Yeah, no, that's uh, setups are hard for that reason. You have that uh, you're like obligated to your friend who, who is gonna ask for details that, and then you don't really like their other friends. So then you're a dick. Yeah, there's that aspect of it. There's the old Groucho Marx joke. I don't want to be part of a club that would have me for a member you know there's that thing of like well why are you single and resorting to dating your friends friends you know even though you're in exactly the same boat but it's like (laughs) that same sort of judgment like what's going to be wrong with this person all kinds of peril abounds so what are the shows we're talking about all right well we're going to start out lovely and simple in the 1960s with my three sons Season 2, Episode 16, Blind Date. And then Taxi, Season 1, Episode 3, also called Blind Date. Step by Step, Season 6, Episode 13, The Big Date. And Will and Grace, Season 2, Episode 17, Advise and Resent. Yeah. So starting with my three sons back in the early 60s, We're back in, you know, leave it to Beaver land, right? I noticed one of these sons looked a lot like Beaver's older brother, Wally. He did. I was like, um, is that the same kid? That can't be the same kid. So my question off the bat here is, is my three sons the first numerically named family show, right? Is this the predecessor to Eight is Enough, Just the Ten of Us, Party of Five, you know, Ocean's Eleven? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ocean's Eleven, I think, was before this, right? Isn't the original maybe in the 60s somewhere? Same same time. Yeah. Um, Um, I mean, it's probably not the first numerically named something, but maybe the first numerically named sitcom. Yeah, so... I feel like this premise is pretty straightforward, right? It's it's a family sitcom. The guy has three sons. Right. right. Well, what is it's there to it's say? a widower and his three sons and the father-in-law who is played by what's his name? Fred from, from I Love Lucy. Lucy. And um yeah, the father-in-law moves in to help raise the boys after the mom dies, after yeah. after his daughter dies. And the dad is Fred McMurray, who I right. know from the Billy Wilder movies, Double Indemnity and The Apartment. Double Indemnity is like one of the great film noirs. And I looked it up just now. That's from 1944. So that was yeah. 16 years earlier than this. So he's a much younger man in that one. But The Apartment, which is a Billy Wilder comedy with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, is the same year as this, 1960. And Fred McMurray is the boss in that one. So this would be like taking a sort of a movie star who people were were familiar with for, for well over a decade and then saying, OK, he's getting a little bit up there. Now let's let's give him a sitcom where he's got three sons. Yep. And you're touching on something with his like parallel projects that actually went directly into the production of this show. So he had, because he was this Hollywood heavyweight, he could stipulate some things in his contract that other 
actors weren't able to do. So he had a stipulation in his contract that all of his scenes would be shot first Hmm. for every single episode. He worked only 65 days each season, non-consecutive days. So whatever the week was, he would take a day or two, shoot all of his scenes, and then he'd be done. And so the series, the episodes were always kind of shot out of order. The scenes were shot out of order. And it was a really tightly held secret. So like all like the other actors always had to work with doubles and body doubles and, you know, like stand-ins and all this other stuff. And they hated it. I mean, the kids didn't know here from there. But Fred from I Love Lucy, his real name's like William something, I forget. He hated it. It was like, it was such a nightmare. And it wasn't until the later seasons when they started bringing in extra kids because the other kids were now grown and kind of having families of their own and whatever. There was like a stepdaughter or an adopted daughter or something like that. That little girl who, um, when she came on, she was the one that blew it because her teeth were growing in kind of crooked. And so she would have scenes with the dad where she didn't have her two front teeth. And then in the very next scene, she would be with Bub, who's the, you know, the guy from um, I Love Lucy. She'd be with Bub and her teeth would have grown in. And so then people started being like, what's going on with all these continuity errors? Well, yeah, it sounds like that's going to be a continuity problem regardless. But it's funny that Fred McMurray is such a diva. Like that's something, you know, rumors abound nowadays about people like that. Eddie Murphy famously is like that. If you're if you're not seeing his full face, you're seeing a body double probably in any <laughs> given shot. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it's become known as the McMurray method mm-hmm. or the McMurray something. Right. So people like Dean Martin tried to negotiate that into his contract for his variety show. And lots of and his whole thing was, I don't want to be away from my family for that long because he was concurrently doing movie projects as well, where he was having to be away. So he was able to still I mean, he said it was about his family, but let's be real. Was probably about the movie money. Well, yeah, he doesn't want to spend too much time with his three fake sons. He wants to be with his real sons. Or spending the rest of the weeks that he's not there shooting movies because he makes money from that too. So this blind date episode, we have two older brothers, teenagers at this point, and age is going to be an issue in this story. And part of the reason why this hilarious farce of an episode was a little (laughs) bit lost on me is because it's not necessarily clear watching this, you know, this old-timey sitcom that's been dubbed and recopied and stuff a thousand times onto this YouTube thing or whatever. It's not totally clear, but I guess we're talking about two teenage boys that are different ages. Right. So one is still living at home and is in high school, and the other is living at the fraternity house and is in college. Okay. And the middle son is Rob, and the older son, the one that's in college, is Mike. Right. But so they both get fixed up by friends of theirs. And the the confusion with the names Rob and Bob, right, is because Mike, the older son who's in college, is taking over this date for a friend of his named right. Bob who has the mumps. So Bob, a friend of Mike's, made a date, got the mumps, and then, quote unquote, didn't want to disappoint the girl by just not taking her out. So passes her off to... To a, another guy and says, just pretend to be me because yeah. she doesn't know because we've been set up. Right. And that guy isn't our character. That's the friend of our character, right? right. Like our Mike is getting a third hand at least date here. And they even have a line of dialogue. He says, 
you guys are passing her around like she's a bag of jelly beans, right? If that does not <laughs> let you know, you know, what era we're talking about here, then I don't know. But yeah, yeah. so it's like, do me a favor, go out with this girl and say that you're Bob because Bob doesn't want her to feel you know, like she's been passed on. Like right. he, I guess Bob is thinking that if she, if he calls her up and it because it's a blind date and he cancels it because he has the mumps, she's gonna think he's lying. So he paid his friend five bucks to go out with her in his stead. But now that friend has realized he can go work the weekend as a lifeguard in like the next town over and can make $30 this weekend. Right. So he gives the $5 to our oldest son, the character named Mike and says, Hey, take this date for me. So she's been passed now three times to this character, Mike, and then his friend who's going to go lifeguard, right? The in-between guy, not Bob, mm-hmm. his friend who's going to go lifeguard in one of the best scenes in this episode gets on the phone with this girl and talks to her like she's five. He's like, okay, hun. So now just make sure that when you get to his house, you ask for Bob, okay? It was like, I'm like, who? And then he stops talking to her, covers the phone, and talks like a normal person to his friend, Mike. I'm like, do we do we talk to women like they're children? Is that I, what we do? Yeah, there's lots of questionable treatment here. I'm going to go back to our friend from the Blackish episode, the little girl who said this plan comes pre-ruined. <laughs> I love that line. It's once so again, it's like, what is the end game here? Is the assumption that I want you to go out with this girl and like kind of do a good job so that, you know, she's we, we care about her feelings. So I want you to have like... So I want good, you to lie to her. Right. But not just that. I want you to do a good job and have a good date with her. But the assumption still has to be that this isn't going to possibly lead anywhere because... Otherwise, he would have to just change his name to Bob for the rest of his life. For as long as he's dating this girl. It's craziness. So if that wasn't enough, right, Mike's little brother is named Rob. And he's the one who, like we said, is, you know, like a sophomore or something in high school. And he's going to a dance and he gets fixed up as well. His friend's mom has a friend who has a daughter who's in junior high. And she, I guess, needs needs a fix up or something like that. There was no real establishment of the why, right? The point is that both of these guys have these blind dates headed their way. And the show does a pretty good job of kind of building up a mystery. You know, I feel like the the emphasis is on one more than the other. I feel like there's more emphasis on the younger kid. We, We didn't mention that there's an early scene between, I guess it's Mike and his friend, where there's this recurring motif in their conversation where he's going, what does she look like? And he keeps saying, well, she's she's really smart. Yeah, but what does she look like? Well, she's really good at... And I just bring that up to point to, like, we're, we're getting on that, that sub-trope or that convention right away with, what is the blind date going to look like? Let's not kid ourselves. That's yeah. important. That's important. And they have that conversation, which tees up the, like, you know, you're, you're not telling me what she looks like. You can't say what she looks like because she's probably a dud. And then Rob, the younger brother, has a similar conversation with Bub, the, um, right. you know, the, the father-in-law. Fred, Fred from Fred and Ethel, where he says, I never went on a blind date in my life that didn't turn out to be a reject. That right. is his exact quote. 
which is great because then that, you know, then Rob later repeats that to his date, which is oh so lovely to hear. But I will I will say so Mike, the older brother to his credit, is incredulous by this whole plan. Like, he's going along with it because he's, he's like, whatever, I don't have anything else going on this weekend. It's fine. I'll do my friends a solid. It's a bummer. Bob has mumps. And my other friend wants to go make some money. So, like, okay. But I don't think this is a good plan. Like, he's not really all about it. Well, so here's where the farce thing starts to happen, okay? The baby brother, the third brother of the three sons, mm-hmm is at home he's like elementary school age and he's got a friend over and he runs upstairs and the friend answers the phone at the house yeah okay so we have these like parallel phone calls because there has been an established scene already that mike the older brother is going to just meet the girl that the blind date at his parents house so she's going to show up to his family home while Mike is actually at the frat house for the weekend, the fraternity house for the weekend. So he's like, okay, well, I'll try to get myself over to my house and and that will be fine. Now, at the scene in the house where the youngest brother's friend picks up the phone, the message is left that, hey, you can pick me up at 1120 State Street or whatever. Yeah. So... The youngest brother gets this message from his friend, doesn't know if it's for Rob or Mike, right. and so assumes that it must be for Mike. Yeah, and he calls so the frat calls house. Calls the frat house, passes it along. So now Mike has been told, okay, go to your dad's house because I'll meet you there. No, just kidding. Go to 1120 State Street and, and pick me up. And so this is where the wires get crossed, right? Because this message is actually for Rob, who's supposed to be picking up the younger friend's daughter or whatever to take to the dance. And the message goes to Mike. And so then Mike turns up at the house that has the junior high school, girl who looks very young right and then rob is sitting at home thinking that the friend's mom is going to drop drop this girl off but who turns up but mike's date right and so this is where it all sort of gets a little lost on me it's played in a way that we the audience are supposed to understand like something is weird here like he opens the door And they look at each other and they're not saying anything and the music goes crazy. There's this weird like wah, 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 like the weird sounds, uh, weird horn sounds and everything that's showing you like you're watching some sort of crazy Bugs Bunny cartoon, like as though what you're seeing is supposed to be completely preposterous. Because she looks old enough to be his mother. Well, that's the thing. I'm staring at this going... I guess it's supposed to be that she's older than him. Like, to me, it just wasn't that clear. I don't know if it's because it's an old show and it's black and white and it's standard definition and all that, or whatever it is, it just, it did not totally read to me. Yeah, well, okay, so the thing of this that gets a little weird to me, so the way it all works, right, is that this woman, not girl, comes to the door to have a date with who she thinks is Bob, and she says, hi, are you Bob? And he goes, well, yeah, but no, I go by Rob. And that that's how they're like, oh, I must be with the right person, right, yeah. because of all of this shenanigans. 
And the kid, Rob, who, like I said, is about 15, is overwhelmed by the fact that this is a woman like she's clearly a woman in her 20s and he goes into the other room to talk from talk to fred from i love lucy and is like bob she's she's an amazon because she's like about six inches taller than he is yeah and uh and so he's like his grandpa is like look you gotta go on this date you told her you would take her out and so then he peeks out and he goes oh she must not be there her mother's there and and rob's like no that's her and he's like whoa that they're okay and he gives him some money and is like well you've got to take this girl to the dance gives him some cab fare and sends him on his way and he's like i've never taken a cab before i don't know what to do so off they go and the lady just her reaction to it is this sort of perplexed embarrassed like she, she won't say anything she just keeps kind of looking off to the side and looking which i don't know i guess maybe that's a a realistic portrayal. But I mean, what would you do if you thought your friend was setting you up with someone like your age and then it turns out that it's some 15-year-old? Yeah, no, I guess what I would do is say, there must be some mistake. Oh, I'm an adult don't... and you are a child. But you don't <laughs> live in a sitcom. <laughs> and so meanwhile, again, the reverse is happening. The older brother goes, you know, to this front door, knock, 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 ring the doorbell or whatever. And this is sort of the opposite. Again, we have the mismatch, but this this girl comes out of the door and is like, great, nice to see you. I can't wait for our date. And she's all kind of smiles and sunshine. And again, by this point, I'm getting the picture. Like, okay, it's an age mismatch. I get it. It still doesn't totally read to me. Like, to me, these two boys don't seem that different in age. Like, I I get like, okay, this girl seems a little younger. The other lady's a little older. The whole thing was just like asking more of me, I feel like, than I was was able to get. It was their their 60s getup. Just you couldn't tell the ages of them, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it was really clear that the woman who was with Rob, the younger son, was older and that the age thing between Mike, the older brother, and this, like, junior high school girl, that wasn't as clear. And it was just supposed to be made clear because she was so... And then we did this, and oh my gosh, and then da 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 the way she's dressed a little bit. She, like, she just is acting very young. And he, Mike, just keeps trying to, like, get out of this date and take her home. And is like, well, your mom said you had to be home early, so let's get you home. And then they run into his dad and his dad's date. And they both are looking at Mike like, uh, why are you with this child? This was my question, because what he says to his dad, he goes, dad, it's not what you think. What does he think the dad thinks? That he's boning this this 12-year-old? No, that he's on a date with somebody really young. Like, that's what he thinks. Or that's what he's worried that he thinks. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Both of these dates, I noticed, have the same dynamic, which is one person sort of jabbering and the other person kind of shifting in their seat uncomfortably. But in one case, it's the brother, the boy, who's shifting uncomfortably because the younger girl is kind of like talking his ear off. And in the other case, it's the older woman who's just kind of looking around. Random question. When in our society did we change the emphasis on how we pronounce ice cream in the old timey things they always go like let's get some ice cream you know oh i sure do love this ice cream and then i don't know if it was the 70s somewhere we decided to start calling it ice cream but anyway (laughs) 
right? I've never thought about that before. I'm sure it has something to do with like malt shop days that it was an iced cream. Mm. But I, that you have now just like opened my eyes to a whole new thing. I just remember in the movie Dennis the Menace from the 90s where Walter Matthau plays Mr. Wilson. There's a part where he tells one of the little kids, hey, hey, your dad says to come on home. He's got some ice cream. You know, they, they just like to say it like that. But anyway... They all go out for ice cream at the end, and they sort of cross paths. ice cream. Right. And they cross paths, right, and sort of figure out what this crazy mismatch was. Yes, they figure it out because the girls introduce them, or, you know, the brothers introduce the dates and say their names. One's named, like, Janie and one's named Bonnie or something like that. And they're like, wait a minute, you're Bonnie? You're Janie? I was supposed to be with... And then they all get a good laugh. And I'm expecting there to be some type of conversation following this, right? Nope. End credits. I burst out laughing. I was like, I said, I was like, this is it? That's it? We we wait this whole episode for this scene? And it's like, oh, well... That, now we're done. Yeah, Saved by the Bell would pull the same move of just having no denouement whatsoever. Like, just <laughs> immediate, immediate roll credits as soon as, like, well, I guess we won the basketball game. Over. Just complete, you know, just no gap at all. I was just like, what? What? <laughs> There's no payoff. Like, that's it. So this is obviously blind date as farce, right? This is purely, this is straight out of noises off. You know, this is, oh, what if you got set on a date and, you know, since you don't know what the person looks like, all kinds of crazy hijinks can ensue, all kinds of crossed wires and miscommunications and, you know, mixed up identities and stuff. So I don't know, I guess, I guess they learned their lesson, you know, and, uh, or not. Cause we don't know. Like, it's like, oh, haha, we should be with you and credits. Yeah. All right. Moving on to taxi season one, episode three, blind date. Yeah. So this one starts with Latka, Andy Kaufman. I'm going to go ahead and say uh, Lodka doesn't age well for me. This is more of the, isn't it funny when a white man does a foreigner's voice? It's more of that sort of balky, you know, aren't foreign people funny? Isn't it weird the way they talk? You know, I don't think he needs to be like tried for war crimes or anything, but I, I find it annoying. I think a lot of people at the time probably found him annoying as well. He was such a like a different comedian. Like he, you know, he was one of these guys that he would go into character in the way that we think of these method actors now who are just like they take it too far. You know what I mean? Like you're not yeah. doing it right if if you're completely immersed in this thing and then you're being rude to other people and acting in all these ways where it's like, oh, but it's just the character. It's like, no, dude, it's you. You're making that choice. Yeah, I remember that movie, The Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey, you know, where he played Andy Kaufman. And it didn't go into a lot of details about this, but I remember those scenes where they show him on the set of this and the rest of the cast just hated him. Like he was just obnoxious and unreliable. Right, because he was always in this character. And then, I mean, you know, he would go on to have the Tony Clifton character as well. And so, but I mean, all of that aside, brilliant comedian as well and you can see a lot of genius i think in some of the things that he's trying to do yeah i think that's what's so sort of painful to me is that i have a lot of 
interest and, you know, sort of respect for what he did as this sort of groundbreaking figure in comedy as a cast member on this sitcom and as a funny side character, not interested. You know, I just I, I find him annoying. And like I said, even like mildly offensive. Yeah. But the A story in this is all about how. One of the characters is a struggling actor, right? And he has... Kaniki from Greece. Okay. He has an answering service, which is a thing I have to imagine has kind of gone away in recent years. Yeah, I thought... I took notes on that. I was like, that's really cool. I didn't think about that. Like, before there was such a thing as an answering machine or before answering machines were... It, like, but even after them, I remember dealing with actors answering services. Oh. I think it was a little bit like if you didn't quite have an agent yet... But you wanted a sort of professional, you know, like you wanted something a, a little fancier than just an answering machine. I think a lot of sort of struggling actors would have these answering services, which is basically like a number you could call and leave messages and stuff. And it was just, yeah, a little bit more professional than, you know, leave a number at the beep or whatever. Well, and you didn't have to rely on technology, right? Like right. if some if the tape fails or something failed, you didn't you would never hear about this job that you might have gotten. Yeah, but I feel like I can remember using them a little bit in like the early 2000s. Anyway, he has this answering service and everyone's in love with the woman's voice who, you know, takes his messages on the service. Yeah, one of the ladies who works for the answering service that every now and then they don't always get Angela but when they do a lot of the guys Tony Danza Alex they've all had nice conversations with her uh, Danny DeVito she just seems to be you know like an affable fun lady and um, well so the other night Alex called to talk to what's his name in the show Kanicki. Anyway, he called to talk to Kanicki. And yet he wasn't there. So he ends up leaving a message with Angela, but then talked to Angela for an hour. And he was like, wow, it was a really nice conversation. Like, I, I kind of like her. I think I might ask her out. Yeah. And we should flag this now because, you know, we often get lots of overlap in our episodes. This one, we have like a straight up remake, almost yes. like a shot for shot remake coming up later on with Step by Step. But yeah, he's like, this woman who takes your messages, she sounds sexy. We're like soulmates because of this conversation we had. I want to I want to ask her out, right? I want to I want to take the next step. Right. And so, okay, so the premise of Taxi, 1970s sitcom, started in like 79, ran to like 82, 83, something like that. It's all these people who work at a New York taxi stand right and so we almost never see them in their cabs and rarely see them with customers it's all about them just like after work or before they go out yeah, on their it's in this garage in the garage it's a workplace comedy that is very maybe the most blue collar workplace comedy ever or one of them you know it's all these sort of greasy guys and gals uh but what i noticed about this it's directed by the Charleses, right? That yeah, we like to talk is, about with Cheers. Cheers, yeah, and James Burroughs. This was right. their, like, one of their first things exactly. together. Exactly. Same creative team, basically, as Cheers. And you immediately see the same thing I always compliment Cheers on, the living set, you know, that while you're watching these conversations with the actors, you're always seeing these people milling around in the background. It's a different environment as Cheers, so it's not the nice mahogany walls and everything. It's a little more messy and rough and tumble but it's that same thing where it has that subliminal effect on you where you're seeing people you're seeing life living breathing people constantly walking around in these 
surroundings and it just it, it just changes everything and gives it this warmth and this humanity absolutely I, I noticed the exact same thing and I was like man all these extras get to like watch these brilliant actors I mean there's some really amazing actors. you got Christopher Lloyd in this show you got Danny DeVito Mary Lou Henner Judd Hirsch Andy Kaufman as you mentioned who am I forgetting Oh, and Tony Danza, and then the random guy who was in season one and then disappeared because his character was kind of boring. But so, yeah, so I was watching the extras, too, because they get to they get to pay attention to what's going on. They're also in this garage because they work for the taxi company. They just aren't part of, like, the main action group of friends. Yeah. It also reminded me of How I Met Your Mother because they were always in that bar and there were always extras Mm -hmm. having whole storylines in the background that was very interesting. Yeah. Anyway... Judd Hirsch is the main character of the show. You know, it's an ensemble, so we, you know, everyone gets their time, but this one's going to focus mostly on him. And yeah, he goes to this woman's house to pick her up for a date, a blind date, sight unseen. Sight unseen, having had this great conversation with her a few nights earlier. So the minute he gets there, he knocks on her door, the number falls off, he leans down to pick it up. She opens the door and right out of the gate is like, are you ready to leave? Yeah. So basically, the situation is the woman is overweight, right? She is not obese. She's a heavy lady. And I don't know. She has allowed this fact or this attribute to completely define herself and her identity. And or so- at least in this situation, yes. right? Because she, you know, you can tell, right? And it always, it cracks me up in both of these shows, Taxi and Step by Step, like the character that we know that's from the show that's going on a date with this person seems to be completely baffled by the bitterness and cynicism that this overweight person right. is putting out into the world on a blind date. So yeah, let, let's walk through through this she opens the door we see who she is like you said she has this immediate negative toxic bitter attitude but she lets him in and yeah he's going like okay here i am let's go on our date and everything she says is like but look at me don't you get it i'm fat don't you just want to throw up and he's yeah, like don't you want to leave like oh uh, oh you get a gold star right, you've been nice to the fat girl okay you know well why don't we just stay in you know and she's like she's subverting and kind of throwing out there all the things that she's heard from dates in the past like oh let's not go out let's stay in because i don't want to be embarrassed of you like she's saying she's taking all of these experiences that she's had before and she's trying to upend them by putting them out there first but by doing that she is you know sounds really bitter and cynical and alex is just like hey i i mean it'd be okay like uh, let's just go out like it's cool i'm I'm good with this you know and i will say again like i said at the start i related to both sides of this i've had the experience of showing up for the date looking at the person and going, "Mm, I don't think this person's my type. You know, I've definitely been on that side of it. And I have been on the side of it, even though I was not overweight or, you know, I didn't have that particular issue. I've absolutely been in the position of the self-fulfilling negativity, the thing of like, oh, this person is probably not interested in me. So let me just show myself out without a fuss. And like, I'm not even going to, not even going to give myself a chance to win the person over. 
over because my insecurities and my negative attitude about myself is going to make me unattractive and going to make me somebody that this person couldn't see themselves being interested in. Right. And so and in doing so, it keeps me from being hurt because now I have I've put up all these walls so this person couldn't possibly like me. And now it it doesn't hurt me when they leave because I told them to leave in the first place. Yes. And that's ultimately what this character is doing, what the character in Step by Step is doing. And look, this is not, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud here, but this is very much, it's like the devil you know versus the devil you don't. I would rather have the misery, the unhappiness that I've become very comfortable with. I've even sort of, grown to enjoy in this weird sense, feeling sorry for myself and sort of wallowing in this unhappiness that nobody likes me, as opposed to the sort of scariness of putting myself out there and trying to to have a dating life, even though I'm a little overweight. Or and even- eventually, yeah, and eventually get disappointed because I know that's what's going to happen. So I'm just going to end around it. And I think in this episode, in the taxi episode, at the end, we, we get... You know, we have a really good scene where Angela, the woman who's playing Angela, does she does kind of open it up and say it like that. She's like, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to open up to you. I'm not going to lay all my insides out on the floor because you're not going to do the same. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's not fair either. So don't ask me to do that. Right. But so let's let's go through what happens here. It's pretty it's pretty straightforward. They go on their date. And it's a failure because she doesn't, you know, the same pattern continues. Yeah, and they eventually. Yeah, everything Alex says, she's like, oh, well, she never takes her coat off. Oh, you know, and and he's like, he's like, why don't you take your coat off? And she's like, oh, do you really want everybody to see me like that? You know, like it just on and on and on. Yeah. And so they eventually just leave. You know, it is just like date aborted, right? Well, first the friends come in, right? Yeah. Someone asks him, how's your big date? Ha ha ha. Right. Exactly. And that's the title of the step-by-step episode, The Big Date. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So the guys come in, all the guys from the garage come in. We're talking about come into the restaurant. Come into the restaurant. Yeah. where, Where Alex is having this date. And then they see her and immediately she's like, I'm going to go to the bathroom and they all start making fun of her. And Alex is like, hey, cut it out. You know, don't do that. Whatever, whatever. And then they leave and she comes back out and they have a conversation and she's like, oh, your friends were making fun of me. And he's like, no, da, 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 on and on until finally and good for her. Right. She's like, you're lying to me. You've been lying to me since you got here. You say you want to be with me. You say you want to do this. You say you want to do that. You say your friends aren't laughing at me. Tell me the truth and I'll stop acting all cranky. Tell me the truth. And he was like, all right, my friends were laughing at you. Like, so, I'm sorry, but I do want to be here with you. And I, and I am interested in, in continuing our date if, if you weren't so angry. And she's like, well, you could have held on to that a little longer and lied to me at least one more time because it was hurtful. So it's like you get to see this parallel of like, you know, I'm trying to keep you at bay and keep you at arm's length and defend myself before you can make the joke. But then when you give me what I ask for, it, it's still like, I don't really want to hear that either. Like none of it's good enough. And so we get to see a little bit of the humanity there too. Yeah. She gives him unanswerable questions. A lot of times she'll say, you know, he'll go, well, look, I'm not Robert Redford. It's not like I'm some kind of, you know, stud muffin. And she'll go, well, I wouldn't mind looking like you if I were a man. Would you want to look like me if you were a woman? And, you know, just like she always wants to put him in the situation where, yeah, he has no choice but to go like, well, all right, and then say something that would offend her. It is. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's rough. And and look, I mean, 
I'll say I'll say this. I think that a lot of people, right, who struggle with weight issues, those unanswerable questions that she's continually posing to him, that's her all the time. She doesn't have an answer. Like she can't put herself out there because she knows she, you know, is very likely going to get rejected and it's scary. And she also can't just be alone because she is a human being who wants love. So she's stuck in that same sort of unanswerable thing. And she's just projecting all of that with her words. Yeah. But again, I relate to it. You know, I'm oh, not yeah, fat, absolutely. <laughs> but I am bald. And I know, like I read the dating profiles where the girls are like, no bald guys, please, please have a head of hair, you know, stuff like that. Ew, people say that? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that was uh, never on my dating profile. I love, <laughs> I love a solar panel for a sex machine. But it is that thing of like, you have to come to terms with like, I am not everybody's idea of what they wanted their partner to be. I am not what everyone grew up pining for, but some people will find me attractive and it's, it's taking a risk. Like that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And it is scary. And I, and I totally get it. And I think that's where, so before Alex, so Alex goes to work the next day and he's just, you know, he gets there and, Louie, who's Danny DeVito, is making fun of him about, you know, going out with a fat girl or whatever. And see, you know, I told you blind dates are always duds. We get that repeated thing, Mm -hmm. you know, the same kind of thing that you said, right? Like if they have to go on a blind date, you know, there's something wrong with them, you know, that kind of thing. So he's giving him a hard time. And Mary Lou Henner's sitting there and she was like, you know, good for you. You're a good guy, Alex. You went out with her anyway, which I also find offensive. Like there is, it was a no-win situation and Judd Hirsch does a good job and it was written like you know that was a good job of sort of playing that like yeah I'm not a good guy because I went out with her because that's also a shitty thing to say and also I know I'm a bad guy because I'm actually not interested in her sexually now you know like I don't want to date her but at the same time and the way he says it to Mary Lou Henner he says I feel like I'm walking away from a car wreck with a person trapped inside yeah exactly he recognizes this isn't about whether or not we're going to go on to have a relationship and be boyfriend and girlfriend this is a person that needs help that needs some sort of like emotional intervention or else they're going to end up you know jumping off a bridge or something Right. And not that he's trying to be her therapist. And I think he even says that he's like, look, I'm not trying, but like, maybe I can be her friend. And this is, this is where it gets a little dicey for me, right? Because he goes back, they have this great conversation. She, you know, does kind of open up a little bit. And he's like, look, I think we can be friends. Right. And she's immediately like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, you came back all the way over, you know, all the way back over here just to have the we can be friends speech, like screw you thinking that it's a blow off. Right. But he's like, no, seriously, I think we, uh, you know, I had a great time talking with you. I think we can be friends. Why don't we, you know, we can hang out sometime. We can, And she's like, I could call you and like, we can just chat. And he's like, yeah, and I can call you and we can just talk and be friendly. We can tell each other about our day, you know. So they're describing this friendship, right? And I have an issue with it because... It started with interest 
that was more than a friendly interest on both sides. They had an, a relationship interest. And I get that sometimes things change and maybe they're both on the same page, but she's in a very vulnerable place. How much you want to bet this is a friend zone kind of thing and she's going to want more than he's going to want to give. And I just see red flags all over this. And I worry that is it really, truly the nice thing or the best thing to go be like, I'm going to be friends with you and be friends with her and actually make friends and then have it still be this imbalanced relationship. I just, the whole, ah, I just, I was like, warning, warning. This is like somebody being a nice guy in quotes and this isn't going to end well because you can't fix her, dude. Well, I think that's a good point. But all I would say is that it couldn't hurt. I would make the argument that she's in such a sort of miserable state and you kind of get the impression like she has nobody, you know, she has maybe like a mom somewhere. And so she does make that known that she doesn't really have any friends and everybody kind of ditches her. Yeah. So look, I think I think you're definitely onto something that it could lead to some sort of painful friend zone, weird imbalance situation. Or if you want to be more generous, you could say it's a nice start that she has this guy that's a friend that's kind of a normal, cool guy that can start inviting her to things and introduce her to people. And that it's just, it's it's a step in the right direction of having a normal social life and getting a little bit of confidence. And yeah, maybe, maybe she will always have a little bit of a crush on him or it'll be a little bit of a messed up situation. But maybe that could be the start of something besides just sitting in her house and feeling sorry for herself all the time. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think like if I take myself out of real world and put myself in sitcom world, they are trying to sort of wrap this episode up in a bow in the, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever that they have. And so I get why it had to, you know, come to this sort of like now we have a conclusion or we have like an end to this bit. And I get it. And it is considered a happy ending right like she's they have a big hug at the end and, you know, they're going to be friends the theme that was written for this show in this episode is called Angela. It goes on from this episode forward to be the taxi theme. Mm-hmm. The theme song that we hear at the beginning of everything, uh, every single episode of Taxi from here on out is Angela. Well, that's interesting because what I was going to remark on was how in terms of tracking the trope, this is an example of this story is about her growth, right? Not one of our characters. This is not really about our character Alex learns X, Y, and Z. Maybe a little bit, but this is more a case of bringing in this this new character and having them experience this sort of, you know, epiphany or learn a lesson. Right, which is why I was saying with my sitcom mind on, that's why it has to get wrapped up in this sort of short-term thing. If we were talking about Judd Hirsch dealing with, you know, his overweight and you know negativity and psychological issues or whatever abandonment problems then it would that would unfold throughout many 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 episodes right yeah as it is again judd hirsch is sort of portrayed as almost flawless like he just kind of handles everything the sort of he's a nice guy he manages to kind of thread every needle without really offending anybody and at the same time he calls himself out he's like no i like i mean he's like i i'm not a nice guy i don't want to date her you know what i mean he doesn't let that stuff go yeah, unsaid but that's which something is we all have to 
contend with. You know, at the end of the day, we're not attracted to everybody. And we all have to figure out that balance of, I'm not going to demand that everyone I date be, you know, zero body fat, perfect supermodel. But, you know, it's okay for me to not be attracted to everybody. So how do you find that, you know, that happy medium? Are you calling me fat? (laughs) (laughs) I I never, I stuck to my supermodel uh, standards. That's right. Cindy Crawford here. (laughs) Amazed I came up with that on the ball so fast. All right. Moving on to step by step. Step by step. Day by day. This was a favorite show of mine, and you did not like it. It's not so much that I didn't like it. I think I just remember feeling like Full House has proliferated to the point where we've got the whole original cast plus new twins and all kinds of new additions, the Family Matters cast getting bigger and bigger, and then Step by Step shows up, and we've got like a whole other, you know, I gotta learn 13 more people. Okay, so... This we we watched just the ten of us a few weeks mm-hmm. ago, right? This was that this was the replacement. Gotcha. Remember I was telling you how just the ten of us was a growing pain spin-off mm-hmm. and it got put into the TGIF lineup, but it wasn't a Miller Boyette show. And ABC had a contract with Miller Boyette. So just the ten of us was canceled after a few seasons and then going places, which was another Stacy Keenan who's in this. She was in My Two Dads, she was in Going Places, and then she was in Step by Step. So Going Places was like a season and then it got canceled. So what you're probably kind of realizing is that this slot, the time yes. slot, had had a bunch of different shows. Right. They Revolving were just like door. throwing a new show every few seasons into this time slot and so you probably were just like i don't like any of the shows that come on during this time even though you were still very actively watching because we were only two or three seasons three seasons in to full house when step by step joined the lineup for tgif i feel like by the time this came around I just had enough between Full House and Family Matters. I had enough Miller Boyette family stuff. <laughs> you're, you know? you're good. I'm I full just, up. Yeah, we don't need another one of these things. Yeah. Well, so this is a show. I definitely liked it. It is a Brady Bunch remake, right? Yes. This is also starring Suzanne Summers, who I don't know about you, but I was a thousand percent watching Three's Company reruns at this time. So I was like, oh, we get a new show with Chrissy and she's not playing dumb and she's not doing the stupid thigh master thing and the commercials that my mom is like, oh, maybe I should get one of those. No, we got a sitcom with Chrissy from Three's Company and it is a Brady Bunch remake. So you've got Suzanne Summers, the mom named Carol, Mm -hmm. just like the Brady Bunch, who has three kids, two girls and a boy. And then she marries Patrick Duffy, who he's from Dallas, but I didn't watch Dallas. And he's got three kids, two boys and a girl. And that's the setup. Yeah. So I started wondering if the premise for the show is a 
unapologetic remake of The Brady Bunch. And the premise of this episode we just watched is a pretty unabashed remake of the Taxi episode. Is that just their deal? Are are they like the Tarantino of sitcoms? Do they just kind of (laughs) pull from different things and, hey, man, I'm just, you know, cutting and pasting and mixing and matching. Is that like what they're doing here? Or do they just not have an original bone in their freaking bodies? Because everything is a ripoff of something. Look, I think it just so happened that that's the episode that we're watching. We're in season six. This is uh, episode 13 of the sixth season. Mm Mm-hmm. The show was canceled after seven seasons. So the kids are much older now. Like, we're in the time of this show that I had stopped watching it. So Al, who, when the series started, was like this young tomboy, like late elementary school, kind of early middle school. She was my age. And I thought she was so cool because she was like this tomboy. And now her dad has married this woman who has two daughters, one who's like maybe a year or so older than her and one who is is much older than her, like a few years older. And they're like girly girls. And she just doesn't know what to do with it. And there were all sorts of fun storylines that came from that in the early seasons. That's really what I remember about this show. I don't remember much more than that. Like in this episode, we randomly have Bronson Pinchot. Yeah, we have Bronson Pinchot doing his standby weird foreign guy accent. He's kind of doing like half a balky. He's kind of yeah, like... Well, he's doing like a cross between a French and a Spanish because he's playing Jean-Luc, but he is sounds kind of Spanish. Yeah, I think you're you're already demonstrating more like global and geographic knowledge and care than I think was put into this character. They were like, <laughs> let's have Bronson come on and, you know, do a funny voice. Do a funny voice. So, yeah, we're de- we're later on in the series. Suzanne Summers' oldest daughter, played by Stacey Keenan, who we know and love from My Two Dads, she is now in college. She has um, chopped her hair off and has dyed it like platinum blonde like she is shockingly white haired and you know I know her as the redhead from my two dads she was a a favorite of mine because she was a redhead I'm a redhead yay but yeah this was in the time where like I would randomly be home on a Friday night and flip to this show and see Stacey Keenan looking totally different and then seeing Al the tomboy girl that I was just telling you about now in high school and wanting to date which is totally weird because she doesn't date she's tomboy what's happening Yeah. So this is going to be her story primarily. She's going to have the A story, which, like we said, is a direct retread of the taxi episode. This episode begins with Al and her friends sitting around the food court at the mall. I love how they get into this. First lines of the script, right? So dot, dot, dot. Who has the cutest butt, right? That's her friends go, initiating sexiest the conversation. smile, because it was Brad Pitt was first. So who has the sexiest smile? Brad Pitt. Okay, then Who has the sexiest butt? butt? And then I don't remember who they said. Yeah, and then Al goes, well, you know who has the sexiest voice? The guy... Drew. At the pizza store. Right, yeah. she goes, Drew. And they're like, Drew, who's that? And like, Drew Carey? Ew. And they yeah, all- that's, their, that's their first thought for a Drew is Drew Carey, which is hilarious. <laughs> the man known for his sexy voice. So she was like, no, the guy who answers the phone at the pizza place. And then all the girls, they're all like, oh, you're right. He has such a sexy voice. And then Al and Karen get into this sort of like pissing contest about who 
he would date. And Karen is just very matter of fact, like, well, of course he would date me because if a man has the option between the two of us, he's going to choose me. Yeah. What does Elle do to actually like go out with him? Or she just like has the initiative. Yeah. Her response to Karen's like shitty statement is to kind of roll her eyes and be quiet. And then the scene cuts away with like Bronson Pinchot doing some stuff. And in that business, she goes off to the phone, calls up, the guy drew at the pizza place and asks him out. And so then when the girls come back together after the, you know, funny business with, um, with Bronson Pinchot, Al's like, Hey, Karen, guess who has a date with Drew? But so what these two episodes have in common and what makes them different from most blind date episodes or blind date situations in life is that we don't get the like, Oh, I guess I'll go out with him or like, Oh, I wonder what he looks like or whatever. Like it's, There's no reluctance, you know, there's none of that my three sons like, ah, she must be a real dog or something. In this and in Taxi, you have everyone sort of slobbering over the person because of this idea like, ah, with a voice like that, you know, they must look amazing. (laughs) So yeah, so, um, and then doorbell rings, Karen has decided she's going to try to steal the date away from Al, right? She puts on her like sexy red dress and red high heels and is going to answer the door instead of Al just to be like, haha, see who will want me. And so they run over there and they answer the door together. And Drew is like, so which one of you is Al? And Karen immediately seeing that he is, you know, a dude with a big old pot belly is like, uh, that's Al and runs upstairs. Right. So we get basically the gender flipped version of the taxi situation. He comes to her house. He's a fat guy. Again. And by the way, a fat guy who is wearing a prosthetic belly. So he's, he's a bigger dude. Yes. But he is also wearing kind of like a fake belly. And he's dressed like the teenage version of Chris Farley in Van Down by the River sketch. He's got khakis on. He's got a like rugby striped, you know, like wide striped shirt on. And... He's fat guy in a little coat. He's got a jean jacket that doesn't, it won't close. Like, it's too small for him, but he's wearing it anyway. And uh, yeah. that is how he's presented. He looks a little bit older than her to me, but it's it's kind of hard to tell. I don't know. He shows up, he's a fat guy, and he's got the same exact negative, self-fulfilling attitude that the girl had from Taxi. Exactly. He's like, well, yeah, I guess now that you've seen me, you'll just want to say goodbye forever and oh. Well, why don't I just kill myself because I'm a big fat idiot? Like, you know, just <laughs> nothing but negativity and, you know, just super depressing and yeah. self-effacing. So don't you want to stay in and not go out? Don't you want to have our date here? Aren't you worried people are going to see us? Oh, aren't you going to make some excuse to get out of it right now so we don't have to leave? Like, it's all of the same It's the same conversation. Right. And she, in turn, has exactly the same reaction that Judd Hirsch did in Taxi, which is, no, it's fine. Let's go. Like, chill out, dude. No big deal. We're not getting married. I I wouldn't have asked you out if I wasn't interested in getting to know you from your voice, not from, like, who you look like. It's cool. Like, okay. Yeah. And kind of along the lines of what you were saying earlier, we never get to see in these situations what would have happened if these people acted normal. Right. Like, you know, if 
Al in this case or Judd Hirsch in Taxi, if they would have found themselves having to be like, oh, oh uh, uh, by the way, I didn't mention, but I, I'm actually seeing, you know, if they would have had to weasel out of it, if they would have been fully on board, like we never, we never get to that point because these people always sabotage themselves by being so negative. Right. That's an interesting question. Like, I think Judd Hirsch says it in Taxi, where he's like, look, I, I don't want to date her. You know, I'm not interested in her. I'm not attracted to her. And so I think I don't know that he would ever be the guy that kind of weaseled out of a date because that's just not who his character is. Same with Al. We do get at the end of this the same conversation where she's like, why don't we be friends? Not in a like friend zone kind of way. But, you know, this this guy, I don't remember his Drew. He opens up his soul and says he doesn't have any friends, just like Angela doesn't have any friends. And so but before we get to that, we get the same thing with them going on their date. Their date is to the food court. I guess this is another situation. He's like, well, if we're going to go out, I'm going to make it the most public place where everybody you know is going to be so you can be really embarrassed trying to get her to cancel the date. And she's like, "Okay, where do you want to go? Like, whatever. And he comes over to the table, having bought their food, her with a salad, and he's got an entire tray. He's got four hamburgers, three Cokes, like like three different orders of fries, you know. Yeah, uh, it is exactly, you know, he's he's casting himself in every possible stereotype of of a big fat guy. And just like Taxi, her friends come and make some snarky remark or whatever. And she is just like, whatever, don't don't listen to them. Yeah. And he's like, well, don't you want to leave now? Aren't you getting sick of this? And she's like, you know what? Actually, I am. I'm getting sick of you being rude. Like, you're not being nice to me. You're being mean. Yeah. And he's like, well, whatever. And then he storms off. Yeah. Because he also has, just like the taxi girl, the thing of like, every time they say something nice, it's always like, well, I guess you get the medal for being a nice person. I guess you just, you know, you'll go to heaven because you said something nice to a fat person. And so it is this thing where it's like, you're not... You know, you're making this into a lose-lose situation for me at every turn. And so they abort the date and and just kind of go their separate ways. Yeah, well, they don't abort the date. He ditches her. Like, he leaves. And he was her ride. So she is, like, deserted at the mall just for wanting to go go out with this guy. So then, just like in the taxi episode, she doesn't go over to his house later on. He comes over to her house. So he has thought better of the way he acted. He shows up at her, at her house to apologize. But he wants it to be like, rip off the Band-Aid, I've apologized, now I can go, and not be held accountable at all for his rudeness. And she's not having any of it. She's like, um, okay. You know, thank you for apologizing. And also, can we talk about like how rude you were, how you ditched me at the mall? Like, can we? T-? And he's like, I didn't think, well, you know, whatever. We already had the like. You don't need to talk to me anymore. We don't. And she was like, just come in, just come in. Let's have a conversation. And then that's when he opens up and tells about how he doesn't have any friends and people are always trying to like find a way to to leave him and let him be on his own. To the point where he's like, that's the reason I have a job at a pizza shop where I just answer the phone so no one ever has to look at me. Yeah, yeah. Again, we get, you know, if you're if you're overweight, find a, a phone-related job. Find a is, job where you can hide so no right. one ever has to look at you. Yeah. And now look, we're saying it in this sort of flippant way, but I'll say this. 
my ex-mother-in-law was a woman of size and the like the toll that it took on her psyche over the years she was not a happy person and it was i just i remember so many times like we were family for all those years you know so it, it wasn't like she she wasn't pushing family away but it was really hard for her to make friends. She had so many insecurities. She always felt like people were talking about her. Anytime, you know, she had like a bridge club and two people would be whispering or having a private conversation. She just assumed it was about her. Like, it's a real thing to feel like it's hard to make friends because people are going to talk about me. And a lot of times they are. Like, that is the, like, people of size, overweight people, it is the last thing in our society that hasn't really been canceled yet, yeah. you know? And it is hard. So, like, I understand yeah. well, <laughs> why and the people guy, would be this way. The guy sort of goes into his origin story of, like, being a kid and being ostracized and developing these unhealthy eating habits because that's how he would sort of cope with, you know, being alienated from his friends and stuff. And, yeah, just like in the other one, we get this whole humanizing thing. And I would say the same thing where it's a person who is, you know, they're comfortable with a certain unhappiness and they're comfortable with a certain wallowing in rejection or perceived rejection and she's challenging him you know al is challenging him to know come in and you know go out of your comfort zone and like yeah you know you and me are probably not going to be boyfriend girlfriend but like you know, I can maybe I could help you. You know, I could hang out a little bit. And we right. Can, you she know. does the same thing as Alex from Taxi. Yeah. She is like, look, let's be friends. And again, we get this weird sort of sitcom thing of that being enough and like that being OK and that not being sort of this weird red flag of a of a situation later on that's going to have a power imbalance and be problematic. He kind of, this guy, Drew, kind of immediately turns on the dime and is like, really, you, you, you would like to be my friend and hang out with me? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, you mean like we could go to the movies sometime? And she's like, sure. And he's like, well, it's still early. You want to go see Beverly Hills Ninja now? And she's like, and she's like, yeah, why not? And he goes, well, I don't know if you could tell, but I kind of like Chris Farley. And he does like he immediately like embody like this was why this guy was cast. Like yes. he does a whole Chris Farley impression, does, you know, the arms like fat guy in a little coat with his coat that's too small yeah. and, you know, walks out to the door like the guy from Van Down by the River walks, you know, he does a whole like Chris Farley thing and that's the end of the, well, sort of the end of the episode. Yeah, I think you're sort of meant to understand like, oh, see, there are benefits to being a fat guy too. Look at his amazing Chris Farley impression. You see, just the same way blind people can smell really good, oh fat people God, can do dang. really good Chris Farley impressions. You know? <laughs> like, like that's almost what it's saying. <laughs> At least if you're fat, you can be funny. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, again, your thing about sort of friend zoning each other and the, the, you know, potential perils down the road is, you know, like I said, I think that's that's a valid concern. But I also think it's another case of like, let's jump off that bridge when we get to it. This guy has probably not been to a movie with peers, you know, or with even as a friend with a nice looking girl, you know, and so it's just a boost to his confidence even if it's a short-term boost to his confidence, I think it's it helps him. Sure. 
So the B plot in this story, we haven't mentioned much, and that's because it has nothing to do with our trope, but it is another sitcom trope, which is the, like, am I going to have sex yeah, or it's not? Our first episode. Right? Like, am I going to have sex or not? And this one isn't necessarily, like, losing your virginity, because that's not really too much talked about. But the older daughter, played by um, Stacey Keenan, is going away. She's in college. She's going away for the weekend with her boyfriend, who is a friend of her brother's, right? So we get JT, who is the oldest son on the dad's three kids, and Dana, played by Stacey Keenan, who's the oldest child, daughter of the girl, like of the mom's side of the family, right? So... As the years have gone on, she's now dating one of JT's friends. And they're contemplating having sex for the first time. And she's kind of like, yeah, I don't feel ready and I don't really want to. And by the way, good for her. I wouldn't want to sleep with that child anyway. If She's like super mature and having these like conversations with her mother about, you know, being in charge of her own body and being able to make her own decisions. And the guy she's dating is like, I'm wearing my cool boxers. Don't you want to go to bed with me? It's so ridiculous. And then the other couple, this is where we get some of those kind of weird 90s dynamics, which I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Now I know why so many women I know had so many like messed up thoughts in their brain when we were all coming of age. So the other couple, JT and his girlfriend, who is a friend of Dana's, not a family member, not a sister, right? So they are um, having a conversation about having sex with each other for the first time. And through that conversation, it comes out that it would be JT's first time but not his girlfriend's and his girlfriend is explaining to him why she just isn't ready to have sex with him and he is getting upset because he's like well you've already had sex so it's no big deal and she's like no it's more of a big deal because I made that decision once I had sex with the last guy that I was with and it didn't work out so even though I like you more and I feel more sure that this relationship is going to work that is all the more reason for me not to have sex with you yet And that sort of mental gymnastics that women had to do when I was young, and I'm hopeful that we don't still have to do it, but I don't know because I'm old now. But like that mental gymnastics of being like, well, I'm going to hold back and not have sex with a person that I want to have sex with because I'm worried about what the fallout of that is going to be later on and how much, if it does fall apart, I'm going to beat myself up and how much the next guy I want to be with is going to beat me up because, or like, you know, beat up on me emotionally because I have been with two guys instead of one guy. Like all of that is so, oh, it just, it just twists in my heart because it's so shitty that that's the kind of mental gymnastics that women have to do or had to do about whether or not to do a thing that is natural and that you want to do. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I mean. Like, my gut instinct when watching all this is to say, like, hey, you're kind of taking this too seriously. Just go for it if you want to. But then I realize, well, wait, I'm looking at, you know, at least in one of the cases, like a child or even, even an adult, but somebody much younger than me. And the whole thing just kind of makes me go like, I don't, I don't want to have an opinion on this. Yeah, but they're you college know? age. You see, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, 
and it's kind of like but even so i think it's supposed to represent a time in your life and maybe this is just moralizing where it where sex just has this like major significance or at least they're they're floating the idea that it should and that's kind of what i'm saying that for me as a grown-ass guy not that i'm saying i just go around banging everybody (laughs) willy-nilly but it it does seem a little like overwrought and and melodramatic to me but then i have that same thought of like well but they're so much younger and maybe they should be preserving that innocence and that's why i just kind of go like whatever i i don't need to be thinking about this (laughs) even in a grown-up show i guess it would have been around the same time ally mcbeal where they were out of law school full adults like late 20s you know mid to late 20s and the first or second episode of Ally McBeal is all this same conversation where she's freaking out, doesn't want to tell her ex-boyfriend that she's still interested in, that she had sex with another guy besides him since the last time they saw each other. And I'm like, she is almost a 30-year-old woman. It is ridiculous that this is the kind of stuff. But those those stories were all written because that was a real thing that was happening to people. Like, women actually had, and girls actually had to have this, like, conversation with themselves mental calculation of whether or not I can sleep with this guy that I want to sleep with because maybe it won't work out and the next guy down the road won't let will like me less because I slept it's like the whole thing is so it just speaks to the shitty patriarchy that messes with your mind when you're trying to come up to grow up as a sexual being. I don't know. It always, like, when I hear it, when I see it, I have to call it out because it's like, man, I really hope kids today aren't having that same experience. Yeah, I think if they're not, there's new bullshit to uh, to contend with. No, uh, that's true. All the parents that are our age not really understanding non-binary and sexual fluidity. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> moving on to Will and Grace. Will and Grace, this is season two, and it's episode 17 on the streaming services, but it's actually episode 15 when it aired. Advise and resent. So we're back on more solid ground here, trope-wise, I think, in terms of at least what I would think of as a blind date. We're going to have somebody set up semi against their will. This isn't going to be a case of I fell in love with a, a voice on the phone Series-wise, were you a Will and Grace head? Oh my gosh, I loved this show. I'm sure you could tell by watching it with me. I cackle my way through all of these episodes. It's hilarious. It's another Jimmy Burroughs show. So, you know, same director as Taxi. Oh, so good. Just the four of them as an ensemble. Brilliant acting. Megan Mullally. Oh, I love her. Yeah, this was during that sort of dark period for me where I wasn't watching that much TV But I definitely see the influence of Friends that sort of, you know, just something about the the time period and that very sort of colorful version of New York City, her office and all the exposed brick and everything, the overall sense of humor that... There's going to be a little bit of absurdism mixed in with a generally sort of like human down to earth vibe, like everything, you know, not not that I thought it was the same people making it or anything, but it it reminded me that we're in a sort of post friends world. Yeah, in this and, show. and again, same director as friends as well. Mm-hmm. So 
This is Will we're talking about. We're going to be set up on a blind date by his boss, who is Gregory Hines. Gregory Hines with no tap dancing. What a letdown. Um, yeah, so Gregory Hines plays his boss, who is, you know, really arrogant. And so he gets set up. Will gets set up on this blind date. It seems to go well. He seems, you know, kind of happy. We don't see much of the date. We just see the meeting in which... Uh, you know, he is pleasantly surprised at the guy. But we do get kind of the lead up to the yes. blind date, which parallels a little bit with the My Three Sons of, you know, not really wanting to. And what's this guy really going to be like? And what's the point? And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's all I, I, like you mentioned before. Gregory Hines just kind of wants this to happen. Right. And and when Will says like, well, I think it's kind of inappropriate. Isn't there going to be some pressure on me because you're my boss? And he's like, yeah, that's the idea. And. His friend, Jack, is is the friend's name. Uh-huh. So he's in favor of it. I guess he's just kind of doing his duty as a sitcom friend, right? Right. Well, I'm going to be horny on your behalf. Gives, right. He always gives Will a hard time. He always is making fun of Will and calling him fat, telling him he's not a good enough gay and like all of this stuff. So he's just, you know... Jack is like, you just say yes. You say yes to everything in life. You know, Jack has like 17,000 different jobs throughout the series. He's always, you know, hustling and running some scam, but never really successful. He's just, he's out there living life and having a good time. And he feels like Will is boring and old and fat and doesn't have enough fun. So he's like, yes, you need to date. You need to get out there. Stop being boring. Yeah. And in terms of like what this show is trying to represent in the sort of turn of the century moment that it's happening, I always took it as Jack is the more stereotypical one, kind of like the birdcage. Like Jack is more like Nathan Lane in the birdcage where like he's the one where you can have some fun with the stereotypes and he's going to He's going to do the stuff and behave the way that we all like to sort of snicker at, especially in the 90s with the gay stereotypes. And then Will is going to be the character that sort of breaks down the stereotypes and is more of just like a normal guy that kind of shows you like, hey, sometimes gay guys are just normal guys that don't talk weird and do weird dances and stuff. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, the date happens. It's a good move that will has here he conspires with the waiter ahead of time i don't know if they ever follow up on this because the date ends up going well yeah he enjoys the date yeah which i you're right that is a good move i forgot about that yeah he basically tells the waiter like look i want you to uh what would you say like be really rude to us rush us through the courses don't offer us dessert don't offer us coffee which is the kind of thing i would prefer waiters do in general i think but uh yeah and then <laughs> the the guy shows up and surprise he's like kind of a a hot guy right yeah He's got a Scottish accent and they, you know, kind of tease each other and do each other's accents for a minute there. And it, you know, both of them seem happy with each other. And then we cut away to the B plot. Yeah. I mean, we have a sort of like, I'd say a a roughly 50-50 divide here that while Will is handling his blind date story, we've got Grace her her issue is just that her boyfriend is like a namby pamby, right? <laughs> yeah, so he's like new agey and really kind of love bombing her. You know, he's like picking up rocks on the sidewalk and wrapping them with string and giving them to her and being like, "This reminded me of you," and now wear it as a necklace. And but really, that like that 
that's kind of okay. I mean, that's a little annoying. But the thing that's giving her the ick is that he never will make a decision. Like every time she's like, where should we go to dinner? He's like, I don't care anywhere you want to go. I just want to be with you. Yeah. He also dresses like to the T, like your 90s schlub. He's got the little bead necklace, like the little surfer dude thing. He's got the open baggy shirt, you know, the open baggy button down shirt on top of a T-shirt. Cargo pants right the the look is never complete without cargo pants so yeah he just looks like a schlub and you know her story is going to be about uh her following megan mullally's advice her her friend slash you know assistant or whatever uh withhold sex right deny sex is going to be the way that you're going to have him make a decision or just sort of man up or that you're gonna so megan mullally's whole thing is that uh, men are like dogs and you can train them. Like you either, what what was her, you can either this or train them. I don't remember what the other one is. The punchline is when, when she says, you know, withholding sex is a good way to, you know, facilitate a certain behavior. Yeah, and to then, train them. Right. And she goes, I hope that's not how you trained your dog. <laughs> right. And Grace does not want to do that. She just is like, no, 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 I, that's manipulative. That's not how you have like a real relationship. So she tells Karen she's not going to do it. Yeah. And meanwhile, the blind date has come and gone and the episode has sort of morphed into now a why won't the person call me type trope. Right. So it turns out that Will might be a bad date. So now he's super insecure because this guy hasn't called him. So he goes to all, of all people, Jack for advice. And Jack's like, all right, well, let's go try to recreate this date so I can see all the things you did wrong and help train you. And and Will is just like, I mean, he's, I, I, he's so funny. It's like over and over again, he goes along with these schemes, even though he doesn't want to or doesn't think it's a good idea, but he does it anyway because he has this like insecurity that maybe, maybe Jack can teach him something about being a better gay. Well, and all the while he's going to be doing kind of like the Buddy Burns from Charles in Charge, how right. Charles is just giving this constant stream of put downs to Buddy. It's the same thing. Will is just going to be constantly going like, well, what's that rock between your ears? Or right, whatever. exactly. And, and Jack is like Teflon, right? It doesn't touch him at all. And he gives as good as he gets. And that that's part of like, this is if you know, you talk about some of those shows like Married with Children just being kind of mean and how we were mean in the 90s. This is where it's like, it's it's still mean. But it's this sort of you can be mean to your friends kind of a thing, not like we're just sort of blanket mean to everybody. Mm-hmm. And it still doesn't really work. You know what I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really age well. And when they continued doing it when they came back, and that was one of the criticisms of the show was that they had to sort of try to move away from that kind of nastiness. But so anyway, so Jack and Will are recreating this date and it's the barbs back and forth as you would expect. And we're getting all this lovely physical comedy from Sean Hayes. He's a master of that and the crazy faces and whatever. And so Will just kind of realizes like, there's no way I'm a bad date. Like this doesn't make any sense. And Jack is like, uh, you probably weren't, but you're the one that that's the problem. Like you're putting up all these walls and making it in the similar fashion to the people in the overweight blind dates we're doing. Like you're keeping people at bay because you don't want to get hurt. And if you weren't, you would have just called the guy yourself. That's that's what I was kind of wondering this whole time is that is it just a matter of pride 
or playing it cool that Will isn't just calling the guy? Or is there some reason that he would have to understand, like, I'm supposed to wait for him to call me? Yeah, I think he was. And Jack calls him out on it. Jack's like, you're just being a baby. You're being insecure. You are assuming this is going to fail and then allowing it to become this self-fulfilling prophecy. Otherwise, you would just call him. And so Will's like, oh, man, I can't believe I actually got good advice from you. Holy crap. And picks up the phone, does a very funny, like, thinking about the guy's number face because, like, why else would he just have it memorized? Although he picks up a cell phone, so he could have just have it saved in the phone, but whatever. He calls the guy, and as he's leaving the message, the guy comes down the stairs into the very same bar because they were at the bar where they went on their date. Right. So are we supposed to understand they've had a sort of symmetrical experience and maybe this guy has been kind of mulling it over this whole time and wondering why he hasn't been called and they've both sort of been drawn back to the scene of the crime, as Jack puts it. And yeah, it's a little bit of a Mm -hmm. gift of the Magi kind of situation where it's like they're they're both like almost sort of canceled each other out. And I guess, you know, the guy. So they're at a British pub. And so the guy says, this is the only place I can get gray meat just like home. Right. He has some excuse. Uh, So I guess, you know, it, it ends on a happy note for them. Are we supposed to understand like. Do we see this guy again? Not really. And that was true for a lot of... Right. You know, this is kind of like the James Bond movies where it ends with him making out with the girl and then we'll have a new person next time. Right. Well, and a few episodes later, uh, Will's on another blind date when Stan, Karen's husband, has a heart attack. So, like, yes, there, there's just always... At any given point in time, only one of Will or Grace can have, like, a, a steady person, like a real relationship. And currently... It's Grace with this guy, Jason, or something that she's dating. Right. And so I'll say on that note, we get, I think, the best scene in the episode, maybe, their little dish session, right? It's the one scene that they really have together. And for me, anyway, as somebody that didn't really watch this show that much, it shows me exactly what their dynamic is. Right. Now, it's playing a little bit into this stereotype, I feel like, that gay men are great listeners, right? Hey, ladies, if you want somebody to listen to your problems, you need to find yourself a gay man. You know, <laughs> I feel like it's it's doing that thing we were kind of obsessed with in the 90s, the movie My Best Friend's Wedding, I feel like, has, has that thing going on. Yeah, it does. But, I mean, that's this whole show, right? Right. But, that- but we're in season two. So, like, premise of Will and Grace is Will and Grace are best friends and uh, since like high school or whatever and Will came out like they dated in college or something or maybe they're friends from college and uh, they dated in college and then Will came out to Grace and that was really hard for her but they kind of pushed through and they developed this amazing friendship and they're codependent on each other and so by the end of season one that becomes this thing and so Grace moves out Grace moves to the apartment across the hall now that only lasts for a little while at some point Jack moves into that apartment and Grace moves back in to you know Will's apartment and they live together again but so we're in this point in the show where they're living across the hall from each other so we aren't getting their like up in each other's business all the time they have to choose to like come have a dish session 
And it is done really well in terms of, again, just like the physical comedy. This is one of these scenes where, you know, the director has zoomed in on just the two of them on the couch. You're not even seeing the whole couch because it's so tight on them. And every time one of them is telling their story, they have uncrossed legs and they're leaning forward like, oh, my goodness, let me tell you everything that's happening. And the other person who's listening has crossed legs. And so they swap back and forth just like click 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 you know where one will tell you know will will tell three sentences of his story and be like isn't it crazy i'm not crazy this guy should have called you know and before they even start to have the conversation they're both like all i want from you is to is for you to listen to me vent and tell me that i'm right and grace is like me too okay go and i'm so mad about this and i took karen's advice what do you think you're right cross legs uncross legs and i can't believe you did that and it's just this wonderful it feels like a scene in a uh in a show like a play that you would watch it's really well done yeah and the way that they're you know they have to be economical about it and so they understand we don't have that much time so they do it sort of rapid fire like you said they don't even really respond to each other but that's what's so good about it is that the way they play it you get the sense we're really actively listening to each other. I'm not going to actually remark on anything you say. I'm going to jump back to my thing and talk about my thing, but I'm still listening to you. And you see the way that that has a value for them, uh, right. even and though they're this, not talking through. Yeah. And even, and so then when the scene ends, they're like, they're both like, you're right. And you're right. Yeah. And then they walk in opposite directions. Will and deeper into his apartment, grace back to her apartment. And immediately Will's like, I'm the worst. I just, of course, he's not going to call me I, I i'm just horrible and like he melts into his own insecurities and then we hear grace kind of muttering as she's walking to her apartment and she turns around and she was like i can't believe i listened to karen i'm so stupid of course i shouldn't have manipulated him by withholding sex i'm you know and her insecurities come back to the surface and she slams her door so it's it's a really great like you said they did it at rapid fire because they need to for a 22 minute episode but also because that's like the shorthand of really good friends you know what i mean this is something i say to you all the time i'm like you you just need to listen to me yell and tell me that I'm pretty and give me a hug. <laughs> yeah. And that's more or less what they do. And uh, Grace's story is sort of resolved by her boyfriend, I guess, because she withheld sex. Like her boyfriend storms in. Well, he, he breaks up with her. Yeah. He's, he's not a namby-pamby anymore. He's like giving her what for. He walks over to Megan Mullally and starts yelling at her. And that turns her on, I guess. It turns uh, everybody on. He comes back in and he's just like... I couldn't understand why you would possibly say these things because that's not the grace I know. And then I realized it was you. And he turns on Karen and he yells at her. And then he turns back and he's like, you know, basically is like, I'm not interested in being with you if that's who you're going to be. And if you're going to take it, her advice, then this is over. And Grace is like immediately like, oh, he's such a man because he got mad at me. And. And so is that around. his, is that the end of him on the show? I don't remember. He's not like a main boyfriend character. He probably exists for a few more episodes though. Cause I feel like, I feel like he's around when Stan maybe has a heart attack. Like he definitely is a punching bag for a little while longer, but not much longer. Cause like he still, like she still has the ick. So in terms of the blind date trope, this is pretty much a matter of like, don't drive yourself crazy. Right. Don't, you know, pride. Don't get hung up on pride. It's been interesting the way these four 
uh, we've never had episodes where there were two that overlapped so tightly and then two others that were just kind of floating around sort of doing their own thing. You know? Well, and part of that is just there. I mean, you want to talk about a wealth, you know, <laughs> to choose from this. Yeah. We had upwards of 60 episodes just on a cursory search of TV episodes with blind dates. Three episodes later or two episodes later on Will and Grace, there's another Will goes on a blind date episode. Yeah. Uh, there's just, uh, there's at least four of them in Golden Girls and Frasier. So many subtropes within them, right? That y- we saw the subtrope with the two, you know, step-by-step and taxi. So we were like, all right, well, we definitely have to put those together. But man, there's just, there's so many episodes with blind dates. TV shows love to do this. Yeah. I mean, dating in general is obviously, you know, with some shows, that's that's the whole thing. That's what it's all about. And yeah, it's something that now... You know, it's sort of changed and we have all the online stuff, you know, prior to, you know, whenever that stuff really got started, this idea of a blind date, a fix up, you know, it's a trope that comes from real life. And as we've seen, there's all kinds of different ways you can go with it, but it's a way to get a new character into the spotlight. Right. To have like a fresh blood story, have have something happen that you wouldn't expect or that is... Like, give your character that you know and love a way to shine and look like a great person, like what happened in Taxi and and, um, Step by Step, or kind of do something silly and farcical like we got with My Three Sons. Yeah, and you almost have that Shakespearean, like, act structure where you've got, like, the date is sort of in the middle. That's, like, the climax, you know? And you've got, like, what happens before and then the sort of aftermath of, like, how do we pick up the pieces? Or no aftermath at all in the case of My Three Sons. Oh, I'm supposed to be with you! Credits. Yeah. So in in terms of, like, who did the trope the best, I think Will and Grace, even though it was a really awesome show to watch, this was like a, a throwaway part of, of the story. It wasn't really the central piece of it. Um, yeah, it set up was, lots of other things. The fact that it was a blind date ended up being sort of incidental. Exactly. So... Can't, I don't think Will and Grace was trying to teach us anything about blind dates so much as it was just trying to teach us about like who we are in the dating world, right? Which lines up with the lessons of the two people in, you know, the overweight kind of situation where it was more about like them getting over and them having a journey of, you know, acceptance of their place in the world. But I have to say, as much as I thought the ending was really fucking annoying, (laughs) I think that I liked My Three Sons. I think I liked My Three Sons the most. I thought it was kind of funny. It was a little bit, I don't know. It wasn't a great episode of TV, but I thought the the premise and the mix-up thing was kind of fun. Best episode to watch, just hands down, I think, was Taxi. The My Three Sons episode is exactly what you want from that, right? You want to watch a Nick at Night type black and white old timey show. You know, oh, the two boys have blind dates and the older one gets mixed up with the younger one. Perfect. You know, total tropey sitcom nonsense. That's that's exactly what we want. And to a certain extent, the same thing is true with the middle two, Taxi and Step by Step. It's very much that sitcom sermonizing of like, 
once in a while you're going to meet somebody who doesn't believe in themselves or who has a, a negative self-image. And, you know, when that happens, you should take the time to be nice to them, befriend them or whatever. You know, it's just it's it's very much that TGIF ABC family kind of stuff. And yeah, I guess. It's it's funny seeing the taxi version of it, the more like gritty <laughs> 70s version of of what is still ultimately the same thing. Yeah, I felt very much like the taxi episode was going for an Emmy. Like they wanted to get a guest star nomination for the woman who played Angela. Well, like she had two big monologues. It was a really emotional journey. Yeah, the end, the very, very end of it is a great example of the good sitcom moment with heart and then you undercut it, right? Because she's asking him all the questions that you said before. So you're saying I can call you when I need to talk. Yes. So you're saying we could go hang out sometimes. Yes. And she says something like, and, and, and what if I need a hug? And he hugs her and it's a really like genuine heartfelt moment. And it really, you know, it starts making you tear up and she goes, you know how long it's been since I've cried? And he goes, how long? And she goes, about a half hour. <laughs> it's, it's very funny and it freezes on that. And yeah, it's, it's a great little ending. I think that one in some ways is the strongest. And then Will and Grace in terms of just like, you know, more fun, modern sitcom stuff. Again, like Friends, that sort of bright metropolitan late 90s vibe. Uh, so, yeah, they all have something to offer on this one. I think, you know, weird sexual politics notwithstanding, I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> lots, lots to learn. I mean, if we were doing a different episode, that would be a really great conversation. <laughs> yeah. All right. So much for the blind dates. What are we talking about next time? Next week... Don't play with matches. We're talking about accidental fire episodes. Webster, Season 2, Episode 5, Burnout. Family Matters, Season 2, Episode 1, Rachel's Place. The Drew Carey Show, Season 9, Episode 19, Burning Down the House. And Abbott Elementary, Season 2, Episode 15, Fire. Yep, that's next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Studio dog.